Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Let's jump in. Uh, we're looking at all five books of John today. That would be the Gospel of John, and then First John, and then Second and Third John, and then Revelation. So who's the author? I'm going to make the argument that we're talking about John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. But we need to be fair here. This is another one of those areas where secular scholars are going to disagree with me. So let's describe what they would see. So... Depending on the scholar, you're going to have as probably about four different authors there. They'll see jo- the Gospel of John written by one author, First John by another, Second and Third John by yet another, and then Revelation. I've yet to run across anybody that says Second and Third John are not written by the same person. They're so very similar books. They're similar in length, they're similar in composition, word choice, etc., etc. By the way, in terms of length, they're extremely short. You saw on the video, our, our Bible Project guys didn't spend 15 seconds on, on either book. In fact, if you sit down right now reading at a normal speed, it would take you about three minutes and change to read both. It's just not, they're not very long. They're 12 verses and 13 verses apiece. They're the shortest books in the Bible. I've heard people say that Obadiah is the shortest book in the Bible. Well, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, but it's four times longer than Second John. Second John is r- real quick. Okay, so if that's the case, then if the secular scholars are right, then the gospel according to John then is perhaps written by the, quote, disciple that Jesus loved. And we're going to get to this in a second, but there's an anonymous figure in the book of John who remains anonymous very conspicuously. That you'll see this, and then the disciple that Jesus loved leaned back in his chair, that kind of stuff. You'll see that phrase quite a bit. And most people would agree that whoever that is, is either the author or the person who wrote the book wants you to think that that guy is the author. And then the books of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, most scholars would say all three of them. Although sometimes there will be arguments to separate. But that person is referred to then as John the Evangelist or John the Elder. And then, finally, in the book of Revelation, you have John the Revelator or John of Patmos. 
And so secular scholars will often try to imagine three or four different authors for those for those books. And one of the, the theories that is, seems to be popular now, or at least I, I really don't have my thumb on the pulse of modern biblical scholarship as much as I would like. I just don't have the time. But from the last time I remember reading about the subject, the current theory is that maybe a book like John was actually written by committee. I remember last week I defended the idea that the first century church was not a collection of rival groups. That Paul and Peter and Barnabas and James didn't lead rival churches. They led an incredibly overlapping group of missionaries and pastors and whatnot to the point where people like Silas and John Mark conspicuously worked for both different camps. So Silas is the partner of Paul during the second and third missionary journeys, and then he appears to be the same Silas who helps Peter write First Peter. So there's incredible overlap in these groups. John Mark is another one. John Mark accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, and then apparently after his fourth missionary journey, and somewhere in the middle spent a significant amount of time with Peter and helped and Peter helped John Mark write the book of Mark. Okay, so all of these books, all five books, have similar word choice that would... Revelation kind of sets aside. Let's set a Revelation aside for a second. Let's just look at John and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Similar word choice and similar publishing dates. Uh, no matter how you cut it, there really is no early dating option for these books. About the earliest I would go is probably the year 80. And more likely, late 80s, 90s, maybe even 100 or, or sometime in the early 2nd century. So similar publishing dates, the late, late 1st century, which makes these books, all five of these books, the newest ones in, in the Bible. They are the, the most recent additions to, to the Bible. So why do scholars think that they are different authors then if they're similar word choice, etc.? Well, the styles are very different, especially Revelation. Revelation is in a category all by itself. It has parallels between... Actually, Revelation is more similar to Old Testament books, certain Old Testament books, than it is the New Testament, with the exception of Jesus. Revelation is very Jesus-focused. But I would say it has more in common with Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and the second half of Daniel than it does with anything else in the New Testament. And it really has a lot in common with extra-biblical literature like First Enoch that we mentioned. Was that just Tuesday when we talked about First Enoch? First Enoch and Revelation are actually really similar. They both have visions, highly poetical, both use a great amount of imagery, and most of that imagery is meant to convey things that probably were more intuitive to a first century audience than for us. So the example I always come to is if I were writing a, a letter to one of you ladies about a business trip I had, and then I, on there I said, and uh, me and my partner really, we hit her home run on this one. And you guys will know instantly what I mean is we had a really good business trip. Our proposal was accepted. We're going to be rich. It was amazing. It was wonderful. But in 500 years, when somebody has learned 21st century English and is giving a 
TED Talk about Will the Elder's letter about the business trip, they'll be saying, and for some reason, in the middle of their business trip, they played an old game called baseball. Yeah, so it's there are things that are just going to be more intuitive to the audience of the day than it is to, for us. So there's layers that we have to peel through that I don't think the first century church had to peel through quite as quite as much as, as we do in order to get to the meaning. And Revelation is probably the prime offender when it comes to that because it's just so rich in imagery. Revelation doesn't come out and say anything directly. It's all subtle and it's not blunt and which is strange to say because revel- you'll often hear this this term this idiom in English something of biblical proportions that that uh, if, if you're referring to like um, a stampede or something or or a lot of rain or yeah the rain of biblical proportions although with rain of biblical proportions you'll often be talking about Genesis but if you're talking about a war or a battle or a body count in a war of biblical proportions, you're talking about revelation. All the other battles in the Bible, some of them in Joshua seem to have a pretty high body count, but the really high body counts are in Revelation, where battles with armies, a uh, 200-million man army at one, at one point in the book of Revelation. 200 million, well, it's actually, depending on how you read it, it might be a demon army, but nevertheless, 200 million fighting men of some kind. That's what, we, that American idiom of biblical proportions, that's what's being referred to. Revelation is like the Bible on LSD. And I mean that in the most generous and charitable way possible. By the way, I'm not saying all this to say don't read Revelation or to dismiss it. It is a fascinating book. Revelation should always be read with an open mind. Don't go into Revelation trying to prove a certain view of the end times or to support your favorite novel or movie about the end times. It's going to, if you go in with an open mind, it's going to disappoint you. I, I'm a firm believer, even though I do have a particular viewpoint of the end times, uh, I hold on to my viewpoint really loosely. And even I am very able to criticize my own viewpoint very easily. I don't necessarily think, and I'm speaking as a Christian here, uh, I don't think God intended for us to have a crystal clear view of the future. That's even clear in the Old Testament about stuff that we now know has already happened. Like in the book of Daniel, descriptions of the coming of Alexander the Great. Where from our perspective, what was written in Daniel and the coming of Alexander the Great are both ancient history. But that kind of stuff was written in a way that if you were reading Daniel 50 years before Alexander the Great's reign, I'm not sure you would necessarily read Daniel and say, aha, uh, a fellow from Macedon is going to make a meandering path through, through Persia and crush the most powerful nation on earth. I don't think anybody could have predicted that from Daniel. But looking back, you can see, ah, the goat with two horns and one horn is stronger. Obviously, we're talking about Alexander the Great here. So I don't, I don't believe it's God's intention for us to ever have a crystal clear view of the future. And so many of our Bible teachers who deal with the end times believe they've got it down to, to, uh, I mean, right down to, to like, like the commas. Uh, their, their theories are so well that a lot of end times preachers will preach in front of walls where the entire back wall of their stage is, is a timeline of events that are going to happen in the end times exactly when they happen. And I don't think that level of 
assurance is something we should have. We had a man here in town, and this is before your time, that predicted the world was coming to an end, and he moved his family out of his home. They lived in a car uh, up by the courthouse for a long time, and they were real concerned about the conditions where they were living because their children were all in the car and everything. And, you know... On Main Street. On Main Street. In Erie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was the old courthouse, if I remember right. I'm not sure, but I think... Oh, if it was old, old courthouse, that would have had to been way before my time. Because oh, yeah. that courthouse was built in 62. I think it was probably in the late 50s. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure it was, was... There was a lot of the late 50s and the early 60s that you know, the world's on the end. Yeah. Well, and, and 1975 was one of the day, one was one of the years predicted by uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then some fella created a book called 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1988, and then when it didn't come true, he re-released it called 89 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1989, with the 89th reason being it didn't happen last year, and. And well, I mean, 1914. That was the real. That was the big year. Jehovah's Witnesses were predicting the end would come. And then I actually graduated from seminary on the day that Family Radio, not to be confused with Family Life Radio, and I can't remember the guy's name. And that's probably a really good sign. He predicted that May 21st, 2011. What what day was the tornado in Joplin? Was that the 21st or 22nd? Because it was the day before the tornado. So I think it was May 21st, 2011 was the day that the rapture was supposed to have. And so at our, at our graduation, everybody did the same joke. They'd come up to the podium and look at their watch and go, oh, I guess we missed the rapture. <laughs> and, and they all did the exact same joke. Oh, we missed it by four hours and 23 minutes. You know. And then, of course, that same guy, he, 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 all, he did the same, the 88 reasons, 89 reasons thing. He then moved his prediction to October, and then it didn't happen. And then, of course, 2012 was a big one because the Mayan calendar came to an end, which if you know anything about Mayan calendars, which I know very little, but I know enough to know that all that really happened was that uh, they had a new year. They, had a, they should have had a big New Year's Day party because the Mayan calendar is hundreds of years long. But all that really happened, and the, the, the surviving Mayans, there actually are a few that identify as Mayans. They were, all they were saying was, we're just flipping the calendar over, people. Come on. So predicting the end of the world is a fool's errand. And Jesus warned us of that when he said, at least at, at a certain point when he was preaching, at that point in his life, even he said, I don't know when the end is coming. Only the Father knows. Now my theory is that Jesus now knows when the end is coming, the the, the veil of uh, this is a, a terrible way of putting it, but the veil of ignorance, the that Jesus would have to have at least a little bit of in order to be human, uh, has been removed. His resurrection body, he is in in full God the Son mode now, and so yeah, I think he knows now. But at least at one point, he did not know exactly when when the end would come. So if he didn't know, I don't think we should be playing that game either, especially when he warned us not to. And like I said before, I mean, the end could come before uh, the end of this class, or it could be 5,000 years from now, and uh, or even longer. Who knows? Oh, and so getting back in the notes, we'll see. Yeah, Revelation is completely unique. And then when you look at John, I believe John fits together 
with the other three Gospels like, like Lego pieces, but sometimes you have to kind of jam the Lego piece in. Like one of the Lego pieces has may, maybe been chewed by a teething toddler. But, but they fit together. They fit together. If you do the work, they fit together fine. John is like a, a much higher philosophical and higher theological take on the life of Jesus. First John is a sermon. The video kind of explained that. First John and James are not really letters. They're more like collections of thought. John, James is more like a collection of thoughts. John is more like a circular argument where John keeps making the same three arguments over and over again. And each argument builds back on itself until the end of the letter. And it's just a short letter, but you'll notice that God is light, God is love, God is truth just flows back and in. He'll make that point and here's why it matters. And he'll make the point and here's why it matters. And he'll make that point and here's why it matters. And that's First John. It's a sermon. Second and third John are clearly letters. They're just very short. And, and also bandwagon effect. Once certain once a thing starts to become popular among secular scholars to say then it becomes a litmus test to see whether you're a serious scholar or whether you're a christian scholar and and so just like ephesians first timothy second timothy titus john first john second john third john compared to the gospel of john becomes one of those litmus tests to see whether you're a christian scholar or not as to whether you actually think john the apostle wrote all of those books. Well, I guess I'm a Christian scholar because I'm about to defend why I think John, the son of Zebedee, wrote all of those books. First, John, the son of Zebedee, who, by the way, has one of the coolest names in the Bible. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing the Aramaic right, but John and James were called the Boanerges, the sons of thunder, a nickname given by Jesus. So I always like to refer to him as John Boanerges, the son of Zebedee. So John, the son of Zebedee, is the uh, one of the first apostles, uh, one of the first disciples. Apparently, he and Andrew had been disciples of John the Baptist before him, uh, before Jesus. And then Jesus has his initial interactions at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and towards the end of John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus and John have an interaction which involves Jesus' baptism, which is not marked, which is not mentioned, by the way, in the Gospel of, of John. John the Baptist basically says, Behold, the Son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then the next day, John says, Yeah, the Son of God, and then just moves on. It's like he makes the same point, but just not as elaborately. And, and by the second time, John and Andrew are like, Maybe we should follow that guy. The guy our master says is the son of God who will take away the sins of the world, and that's what they do. And then they go recruit their brothers. And then from that point, the disciple group starts to be, to be recruited, starting with Andrew and then Peter and James. So all that being said, John is strangely absent from the Gospel of John. And yet there's this fellow that's called the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's referred to a lot. And this person seems to appear in cases where John would appear in the other Gospels. And so I think it's clear, the obvious implication that we're supposed to understand as readers is that the disciple who Jesus loved is John. It was in this book that said that the author, whoever wrote John or whatever, would say John when he meant John the Baptist, and he would say the disciple who Jesus loved because he didn't feel, he didn't want the readers to be confused. He didn't want the readers to be confused, and he probably also wanted to give John the Baptist his due right. as I never the, the of that prophet. Yeah. 
It is a good one, especially because there are certain names that just appear all the time. And Mary is one, and John is another one. There are so many Johns in the Bible. you got John, the uh, son of Zebedee, and then you have John the Baptist, and then you have John Mark, the author of Mark. So you got, and, and if the secular author, uh, scholars are right, you've also got a couple more Johns, John the Elder and John the Revelator. So you've got lots of Johns in the New Testament. One of the things we need to be clear is, in our thinking, and I don't know if this is a modernist way of thinking or if it's just how the sentence structure tends to lend itself to our ears, but you can come away from John thinking that he's saying, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. As in, what separates me from the other fellas is that Jesus loved me. I think the implication is a lot more toned down than that. It's rather the disciple, the the disciple is an anonymous figure, but is not just he is a loved disciple that Jesus loved him. Not that I'm the only one that Jesus loved. It's and I, this is probably going to ruffle some feathers, but it's the same thing that happens in our ears when we hear the term Black Lives Matter. Some people think that Black Lives Matter has the word only shoved in there somewhere, and it doesn't. To say Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that only Black Lives Matter. It means that Black Lives Matter. And if, by the way, all lives matter comma, then black lives matter. And so likewise, John is the disciple who Jesus loved, but that doesn't mean he's the only disciple that Jesus loved. It's just a way of of describing himself that is both anonymous, but also is a reminder that he is a beloved figure. He, He is somebody special. Not necessarily more special than the others, but he is worthy. He's loved. Next, and we've talked about this before, stylistic differences can be easily explained. In Paul's case, I think stylistic differences are usually explained away because of the use of amanuenses. That one writer might write something slightly different than another writer. In John's case, my theory, which I can't support it, so take it with a grain of salt, is that I think John intentionally changes his style depending on the genre. Because with these five books, you have four distinct genres. You have narrative in in the Gospel of John. And then that narrative, like I said, is highly philosophical. Discussions about the logos, the word. Logos literally means word in Greek, but it's a very loaded term. About the only loaded term in English I could think of would be love. Because... I love the Chiefs, I love Gretchen, I love pizza, I love my dog Maisie. I just said the word love in four different ways. We all kind of understand it from context. We just know that loves the Chief means that that, that I, I enjoy watching that entertainment program. I love Gretchen deeply. She's my wife. I love pizza because it tastes good. And I love my dog because she's cute and every time she sees me she wags her tail. Likewise, the word logos in... Actually, the pronunciation is logos, but most people understand logos. So the logos, or the logos, uh, in Greek is a very loaded term. And implied in that is not only word. Logos can be used in the same way you say, uh, what word is that right there? I can say, what logos is that right there? But it, it also implies the wisdom and design behind the world. It implies the collected body of human wisdom that we can dip into when we read and learn and when we make decisions and we depend on the gods or in a Christian and Jewish context, God. 
It's just a very deep, loaded philosophical concept. And then John takes that already loaded philosophical concept and then jams it into the front of his book to where right out of the gate, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God in the beginning, and without the Logos, nothing was made that has been made. It's, it's, and then skip 12, yeah, 12 verses later, and he says, And the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John takes that extremely loaded philosophical term in Greek and then basically says, Jesus fulfills all of that, the beauty behind that term. And so John, especially John chapter 1, is extremely philosophical, extremely logical, and it, uh, extremely theological. Nevertheless, John is a narrative. It's telling the story of Jesus or a certain perspective of the story of Jesus. And then, 1 John, like I said, is a sermon. It's a different uh, stop. When I write a sermon, it's not going to sound the same way like when I write a book review for Confederate Reckoning for my historiography class. I'm going to, in fact, if you don't know any better, you might not think it's written by the same person. It's just the style is different. The points I'm trying to make are going to be very different. First John is a sermon. Second and third John are short little letters. And when I say short, they are very short. And then Revelation, like I said, is a completely different world on its own. It is extremely poetic and it seems to intentionally mirror the apocalyptic style of first Enoch as well as the Old Testament books like Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Isaiah. So I think my personal theory is John intentionally changes his styles, his word choice, etc. depending on the genre he's writing in. Okay, so the next thing. When we look at the publishing dates, all of these books are, are written pretty late, which seems to suggest that we're not talking about John the Apostle. Because if John the Apostle is Jesus, if not his first, then maybe his second disciple, then surely John would have written something earlier than that. Well, not necessarily. Like Peter before him, John might not have been literate. John might have had to teach himself reading and writing along the way. And if that is the case, then John seems to have gone a, long, a lot further along the literacy path than Peter did. So I have a question. What did he do before he became a follower of Christ? Well, John and James and their father were fishermen. They were fishermen. Okay. As well as Peter and Andrew, yeah. and I'm assuming their father, okay. were the, the, the villages that, that were, would be along the Sea of Galilee uh, would, would a lot of them, not exclusively, but a lot of them would be fishermen folk. And one of the Gospels, I'm not sure which exactly, said, basically says that Jesus was walking along the, the shore, saw James and John and said, come and follow me. And then they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with other hired men and then they followed Jesus. If you combine that with the book of John then you see that John also was moonlighting as something of a disciple of John the Baptist. That in his free time or in his spare time, or sometimes he maybe would even try, uh, work less than maybe his brother did in order to make sure he could get down to the Jordan Valley and follow, and to do some serious following of John the Baptist. And, so, and it was from he and Andrew, his perhaps buddy, I think they were from the same town, uh, and both younger brothers to men who also became disciples of Christ. So 
John and Andrew would go down and spend time with John the Baptist. And from there, that's where they were basically recruited by John the Baptist to follow Christ. Good question. Yeah, and if they're fishermen and pretty much the same profession as, as Peter, then yeah, they, he probably wasn't all that literate. Now, church tradition tells us that John is the only disciple of the twelve to not be martyred for his faith. It seems like, although he spent time in prison and he was, I mean, he was beaten in the book of Acts for preaching. Uh, The temple uh, authorities beat him. So it's not like he never faced persecution. But church tradition tells us he's the only one of the twelve who doesn't die of being a martyr, that he dies in old age. So he probably dies in the 90s or the first decade of the second century. We know that some of the earliest church fathers, like, and I'm probably going to be wrong on at least one of these, but Polycarp, Irenaeus, and Origen, I believe, trained under John. Either that or maybe Origen trained under Irenaeus or something. But I, Polycarp, I know, was trained under John. So, so from John, you can trace directly into that first generation of church fathers. So if he chose to write in, in these different styles, styles then he had to have been very competent. Or, uh, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is uh, My theory would, would, and I can't prove this theory, but my theory is that, that he would, in the 30s and 40s, he would have been training himself to read and write. But if he dies in the 90s or one, 100s, the first decade of the next uh, century, that's still a good 60 years. So from, from learning... I mean, I haven't even been alive 60 years. So my entire life's worth of his education could have grown from illiteracy to pretty good competency. And so I think that perhaps is one of the reasons why he doesn't write his stuff until late. But there's another uh, explanation, once again, still theory. And I don't hear anybody writing about this one. This one might be an original thought of mine. So take that with a grain of salt. It It probably means it's worthless. The... Book of Acts seems to show us that there are kind of three pillars of the early church. There's Peter, who was the leader of the twelve, and then James, who basically becomes the first pastor, the the pastor of, of Jerusalem, and then he writes the book of James. And then Paul, who's basically the first missionary. And so three of them, their work overlaps a lot, but they kind of cover three different areas of what it means to be a church leader in the first century church. But all three of them die. All three of them die for their faith. And probably all in the, in the 60s. James may have died even earlier. He may have died in the late, been dead by the late 50s. So at a certain point, and also church tradition tells us all the other disciples, at least of the 12, plus Matthias, who replaced Judas, all of the other 12, they get martyred for their faith. So at a certain point, John's the only man standing of that first generation. Once that happens... He becomes the clear leader of Christendom. The Catholic Church does not count John in their list of popes because he never seemed to have had a ministry in Rome itself. And being the Bishop of Rome is, is what the Pope is. That's the official title. In fact, even Francis's official title is Bishop of Rome, not Pope. The, the uh, Supreme Pontiff of the Catholic Church is just part of the description of being the Bishop of Rome. So John seems to have done his ministry mostly from Ephesus. Does not seem to have had a significant presence in Rome, so they don't count him in the list of popes. But at a certain point, he would have outranked 
whoever the bishop of Rome is at that time, maybe Clement, would have submitted himself to John if he had to. Because John was a disciple. And he was an apostle. And at a certain point, almost certainly the last apostle. Because part of the... Even though there are some churches that still use the term apostle, charismatic churches love to use the term apostle. And even the Catholics still use the term apostle to refer to anybody who who brings the word into... to brings the gospel into unreached people groups. Interesting fact. The Catholics even recognize Hudson Taylor, a British... Protestant missionary as apostle to the Chinese because he was doing extraordinary work with the Chinese in the 1800s when the Catholics weren't so or, or at least not anywhere near what Hudson Taylor was doing. Hudson Taylor had an extraordinary mission, uh, ministry that unfortunately was basically deconstructed by the Boxer Rebellion and then a few generations later by the uh, Communist Revolution in 1949. But nevertheless, the Roman Catholic Church still recognizes Hudson Taylor as an apostle to the Chinese, as a Protestant. Nevertheless, when the first generations of Christians used the term apostle, part of that job title was that you had to have been called directly by Jesus. So you had to be part of the Twelve, or a a select group of other people like James, Paul, Barnabas, and maybe Jude, the brother of Jesus. And if that's the case, maybe Simeon and Joseph, the other brothers of Jesus, perhaps they all had the title apostle as well. But there was only a select group of, of people who, outside of the twelve, who had that title. And once John's gone, that the the at least the original apostles, they're gone. At a certain point, John's it. And so once John becomes the undisputed leader of Christianity, I think at that point he would be more willing to then step up. And, and take a role that earlier had been fulfilled by James, when he wrote the book of James. First John and James are similar. Or the work taken up by Paul. So second and third John are very similar to a book like, say, Philemon. Or he would, uh, he would be willing to take up work that had been uh, done by Matthew. Or through John Mark by Peter. And that is writing a gospel account. Once he's the last remaining apostle, he would have been more willing to step up and write that gospel account. And then Revelation, I I guess he he may have seen himself in the same line as the Old Testament prophets, I assume. But my point is that at a certain point, I think he would have felt more comfortable doing some of that writing that earlier had been done by people he might have considered more qualified. People like Peter, Paul, and James. And like I said, that's, I haven't really seen a whole lot of writing about that, so that might be an original thought of mine, so it might be worthless. But that's, that, that's, as of right now, that's kind of um, part of my theory. Here's the strongest bit of evidence for why John the Apostle wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and probably Revelation. And that is the first century church believed it. The first generations of Christians all believed that John wrote those four books. And a good portion of the first few generations of the church also thought he wrote, wrote Revelation. To be honest, there was some debate about Revelation. Because it was just so much different than the others. So there was some debate about Revelation, but as far as John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the first church had no problem believing that was all written by the Apostle. And then, finally, even secular scholars believe that all five of those books 
are similar enough that they come from what they call the Johannine community or the community of John. So they even they believe that if that John wrote either one of those books or none of the books, but that whoever did write the write the books comes from John's camp. They would have been his disciples, the people who are trying to emulate John as opposed to Paul, or trying to emulate John as opposed to Peter. They are the those are the kind of people who wrote John, First John, Second John, Third John, and Revelation. We're, we'll talk about Jesus as the person. We have a lecture set aside for that. But when you look at John, the book of John, a few things stand out. One is, I've already mentioned, the philosophical nature of the opening, the, the importance of the, the logos. So the structure of John chapter 1 is the first five verses are the, the philosophical logos introduction. And then John breaks away to talk about John the Baptist for a bit. And then he comes back in verse 14 to say, and the word made his flesh and dwelt among us. And then from that point on, then you start telling the story of Jesus. Or he starts telling the story of Jesus. And so now you're, you're reading the, the story of the Logos. John, clearly, of the four Gospels, is the one that hits home the hardest that Jesus is God. That uh, a few generations later, after Tertullian, Tertullian didn't invent the idea of the Trinity, but he's the one that gave us the word Trinity. Now we would we would think of it in terms of that Jesus is God the Son, that He is the second person of the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is clearly to be identified with one of those. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't make that case as strongly, but you do see clear signs that they also felt that was the case. So, so for instance, in Matthew, at the end, when Jesus appears and says, uh, the, the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you always, and go in the, uh, in the name of the Father, or, or, or go to the ends of the earth, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always. Uh, before that, it says, they saw Jesus, and they came and worshipped him. That is subtle, but you don't worship unless it's God. And there are clues throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke that show us that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do agree with John. But I think the subtlety of what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're synoptic because they're, they're similar and they tell the same stories in, in a very close order, the subtlety of the synoptic gospels is probably one of the reasons John wrote the book of John to try to hit home harder that case of, it's like Matthew, Mark, and Luke did some really good work here. But I think they kind of undersold Jesus' identity as God. So, boom, the book of John. And then so you have the I am statements of John, where uh, through the I am statements, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate of the sheepfold, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. And then later he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine. Those statements alone are already powerful statements of his divinity. And even stronger when you realize that I am, in Greek, ego, I me, is the equivalence statement of the Hebrew term which is closely translated as Yahweh. In, in the book of Exodus... God says, 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses pushes for more identification. And he says, tell the people, I am that I am. Tell them, I am sent you. His existence, his necessary existence, is part of what identifies him as opposed to everything else. By the time you get to Jesus, just like the loaded term logos, the loaded term ego I me, I am, is a, is a loaded term to the point where at one point Jesus is in the temple, the crowds are arguing with him, and, and they get to the point where he, he's mentioning some things that imply that he is eternal. And they say, you're not even 50 yet. And yet you've seen Abraham? And he says, in language that doesn't work in Greek either. It's an awkward sentence in English and in Greek. He says, before Abraham was, comma, I am. And then what happens? The crowds pick up stones and try to kill him on the spot because they knew exactly what he meant. Especially with the awkward sentence structure, Jesus was intentionally not... Jesus did not say, before Abraham was, I was too. That would have been... That would have just been a strange thing to say, not a heretical thing to say. But before Abraham was, past tense, comma, I am, present tense. Jesus knew what he was doing, and the crowds knew what he was doing. And they picked up stones to execute him because he was declaring himself God. So the book of John's key defining feature is is the strong Christological, which just means the study of Christ, the strong Christological identification with Jesus as God. That is, is its key defining feature. Beyond that, the other th- key defining feature, two, uh, a couple things I want to point out is, one is, the Gospel of John is how we know that Jesus' ministry on earth was about three years. Because you, John gives us a, a clearer calendar of events in terms of the temple feast cycles. The cycles of the Feast of Booths, the Passovers, etc. So we can we can look at John in the the festivals and feast days and the fasting days, the high holidays of the Jews, and we can from that we can tell that Jesus' ministry is about three years. If you look at Mark, Mark seems to suggest a ministry of Jesus that might have just lasted weeks. Mark's quick book, snappy, right to the point. And then and then the other thing is is uh, with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount in the uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there's more teaching in John. John presents Jesus as a great teacher. And Jesus is always giving these, these kind of long, drawn-out, deep, philosophical, theological, eschatological, which means the end times, really thought-provoking messages throughout John, including in his last week. And they, these kind of sermons do happen in the Synoptic Gospels, just not as much. And finally, a defining feature of John is that not as much happens in John. If you actually pr- plot, if you take away the teachings and you just look at the action events, even though we know it's three years, there's only about a week's worth of stuff in John. There's not a lot of talk about movements and going here and there and, and events that are done and healings. It's, it's very few, very little. Oh, I keep saying one more thing. I keep throwing another one. Jesus' probably most striking miracle in his public ministry would be the raising of Lazarus. And that event only happens in the book of John. And that leads some scholars to say that it was an, a made-up thing 
by the author of John. I have a different theory. And that theory is what we already know about John. John's an old man. And John started as a very young man. We have reason to believe he's the youngest of the disciples. He was probably not only a teenager, but probably a pretty young one, 12, 13, somewhere in that range, when he's following Jesus. Peter is probably not much older than 20 when Jesus' ministry happens. Disciples usually aren't at the same age of the person you're following. You're usually following somebody who's got enough age on you that you know you're listening to a wise person, if for no other reason than just because you're older and you've been around the block more than I have. John, therefore, by the time he's an old man, he can tell stories of people who are no longer in danger. And so, if you ta- even in the book of John, you can see that even before Jesus is executed, they're talking about executing Lazarus again. I mean, they didn't execute Lazarus the first time he just died. Cause unknown. Cancer, malaria, we don't know. He died of something. But they're, they're already talking about executing him again because Jesus' raising of Lazarus was already causing people to turn to Christ. And so the authorities in Jerusalem were already talking about assassinating him. And so that's all the reason the apostles needed to to leave out the story of Lazarus and almost no mention of Mary and Martha in the Synoptic Gospels. Well, by the time John's written, all three of those people are probably in heaven. So there's nobody to protect anymore. And so now the story can be told in full. Anyway, that's my theory. So, let's move on to second, third, first, second, and third John. I would encourage our podcast listeners to go to YouTube or Google, search Bible Project, first John overview and that same video will also do second and third john they're very short because he did a better job than i'm going to do overviewing them and we've kind of already talked about all i want to say is first john or second john and third john are really short they're talking about false teachers Ooh, something i read just this afternoon the a theory and i if i'm not mistaken i think it was douglas moo a great bible professor who i think has gone to be with the lord by now but he, uh, in his book I was reading today, and he, he theorizes that First John was not a sermon like everybody says it is, but it was a letter. It doesn't have the inter- as much of an introduction and a conclusion because he believed that, that what it was, it was a circular letter. And that, that John basically wrote the body, First John, and then he would write a short little intro to go with it. And then Second John and Third John might be those intros. And probably there are dozens of others that have been lost. But, especially, he says, Third John's a little more specific. It seems to be covering an issue. Uh, I mean, he calls out Diotrephes by name. Third John might be something different. But Second John really feels like something attached to First John. That's his theory. That First John was a letter, and that Second John, at least, and maybe Second and Third John were the kind of things that would be then attached to First John. So Second John is written to a chosen lady and her children and the church that meets in her house. So when that church received First John, they received it with Second John. That's his theory. So First John yeah, First John chapter five, verses seven and eight. Okay. I'll start with in six. I'm reading notedly not in the King James. And you'll see why that's important here in a second. First John five starting in six. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. 
And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, etc., etc., etc. Now, King James fans will notice that something was left out. In the Vulgate, not even the earlier versions of Do you guys know the term Vulgate? St. Jerome did one of the great translations of the Bible. It was a Latin translation called the Vulgate. And if you think the, Eng- the King James has been the English standard for a long time, for about 400 years, the Vulgate was the Latin standard for well over a thousand. So uh, the later manuscripts of the Vulgate throw in this. And what I think happened is I think some scribe read what we just read and said, this is a bit weird. I mean, the water's probably talking about baptism. The blood's probably talking about the execution of Christ. And I would agree with that. I think that those are the explanations of those weird terms. But this is still kind of a weird term. And then he says, there are three that testify. Where have I heard that number before? Hmm, oh, the Trinity. So what I think happened is a a scribe added this phrase. Dot, dot, dot. That testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Logos, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth. And that's when it comes to the Spirit, the water, and the blood. That's called the Johannine comma. It means that, that the, I don't know if the comma is, is, is used figuratively speaking, but a, a passage was interjected like a comma right into the text. And this is the passage that a King James-only advocate will point to. There are others, but this is the big one. And they'll say, see, our modern translations are trying to do away with the Trinity. There's just one problem. Whoever, whoever was doing these modern translations who were trying to do away with the Trinity, they forgot to take away Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Modern translations are not trying to delete the Trinity from this passage. It just so happens that John wasn't thinking about the Trinity when he wrote this passage. And so we need to be careful that when we read the Bible, we're reading what the Bible writers actually wrote, not what later scholars, who have good theology, but we don't necessarily want what they wrote about the Bible. We want the Bible itself. And finally, and I kind of did this on purpose, we'll spend the rest of our time talking about Revelation. I did this on purpose because I don't want to talk about Revelation for a long time. I, I, really, I really like Revelation. I do, but it's Revelation is a good, humbling experience for me because every time I think I know the Bible really well, any time I think I could pat myself on the back and say, you know, Will, you're a pretty good Bible scholar. All i got to do is crack open somewhere in the middle of Revelation and remind myself I don't really know what I'm doing. So, what is Revelation? This question is a little harder than we might imagine. Revelation is in the form of an apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word which means a revealing. This is similar to the Gnostic groups who, uh, in, not in style, in style Gnosticism is off the rails, but Gnostics believed that they had this secret knowledge that has been revealed to them. In order to belong to our exclusive club of cool people who know Jesus' secret knowledge, then you have to come join our group and then we'll share with you this secret knowledge, most of which is just garbage. John isn't trying to keep an exclusive secret truth. Instead, he's saying that what his book is, 
is a revealing, but it's a revealing to all because he's writing it to us. But the book, as you go through, it's stylistic, it's poetic, it is it uses imagery. The in order to understand all of his imagery, you have to know the Old Testament backwards and forwards, especially the prophetic books of the Old Testament, like Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah and, and Ezekiel. But you also it would be helpful if you knew some Greek mythology and some uh, some current Greek affairs, uh, current events in, in, in Greek times. It would be helpful to know all of the New Testament because John will use a lot of New Testament in the book of Revelation. It helps to understand Roman politics. It also helps to understand ancient politics like the politics of Babylon and Assyria because John will intentionally conflate Babylon and Rome especially towards the end of the book. What's happening in Rome and what has happened in Babylon get meshed together a lot. And in fact, he's not the only one. Peter does this too. Peter in his book, 1 Peter, I think it's first. it might be Second Peter. But Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. So it's not something that John made up for this. There's passages that we really honestly, we need to be honest and say we don't actually know. Like the 666 verse. And by the way, there are other passages, there are other ancient manuscripts that actually have that number as 616. I don't think it's, that's actually not too important because I think the, the important is not for us to decipher the number. By the way, when I was in college, I, I, I had this ambitious plan to write an end times novel. And I decided that what I would do is I would have somebody whose initials were DCLXVI because that's Roman numerals for 666. I thought that would that would be very, really cute. And uh, I actually had a name, and I can actually remember the name, but I'm not going to share it because I don't want to indulge myself. The What little I wrote on that novel was just bad. It was just so terrible, I threw it away. So the, the point there is that we need to be aware of what's going on around us. That, uh, what I did not just say is that the Pope is Antichrist, that Trump is Antichrist, that Biden is Antichrist, or Obama, or Clinton, or Bush, or anybody else. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. Playing the who's the Antichrist game is almost as foolish as playing the when is Jesus coming back game. If John wanted it to be more clear who the Antichrist was, he probably would have. The only theory I've heard that's even close to convincing is that it's possible to arrange the words in Latin Caesar Nero and then you apply numbers to each letter and it comes out as 666. No word yet, or at least I haven't done the research yet to know whether the same thing can happen with 616. I don't know. But even that I don't find overly convincing. I do think it's possible that John one of the reasons why Revelation is so flighty is because I think he is referring to a lot of stuff that is happening in his day. This, by the way, is something I would not have told you 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I would have been more convinced that Revelation, almost all of it, was all talking about the future. And I had my reasons for thinking that it was all about the future. But then it hit me at some point why didn't John just put it in a time capsule of some kind? 
I mean, if that was the case, sure, if, if there is a Holy Spirit, surely the Holy Spirit could have made it so that the time capsule could be cracked open you know, 20 or 50 years before the end times so that that generation could have the information they need. If John gave us this information in the latter half of the first century, then it obviously had to have meant something to the people in the latter half of the first century. Is that to say that the book of Revelation tells us nothing about our time or our future? Of course it does. Of course it does tell us stuff about our, our time and our future. For two reasons. One, just like the first century church was dealing with the political problems of living under Nero and his predecessors and his successors. By the way, we've talked about this before. The Roman Empire was not just wall-to-wall persecution all the time. But being a Christian or a Jew in Rome meant that persecution could happen at any time, depending on the will or the whim of whatever governor happened to be over your province or whether the Jews or local pagans decided to make a big fuss to try to get you in trouble with the local governor, or depending on how the emperor feels at any given time. Nero, for instance, the last time I read Nero, I remember reading that that he actually, at the beginning of his reign, he was actually a pretty good Caesar. For whatever reason, maybe it was mercury poison, or maybe he got syphilis, something happened, and he went nuts. The last half of his reign, he was straight up crazy. And part of his craziness involved a crackdown on Jews and Christians. And he probably killed, probably not with his own hand, but he probably killed both Peter and Paul during his reign. Now, does that mean that, that, that the Antichrist is Nero and none of this applies to our day? No, I don't think that's true either. Because at very least, I think that Revelation gives us a series of archetypes. Things that we should be on a lookout. Every nation in human history has certain things in common. And some of the things in common are that those with power try to keep power. Good nations, long-lasting nations, keep power in good ways. And nations that are crumbling and dying will keep power in nefarious and oppressive ways. And sometimes you have Rome, which did both. Rome lasted a long time because it was a very strong, powerful, economically prosperous, and a strong military. On the other hand, it oppressed its people, and eventually the weaknesses of the empire, it did eventually destroy the empire. And the final reason why we shouldn't write off Revelation as a futurist book is because of the last few chapters. Here's your homework if you choose to accept it. I would like you guys to go home today, and I would like you to read Revelation 20 and 21. You do not have to do this. It is not homework I will be grading. Not 20 and 21. Sorry. 21 and 22. The last two chapters. I'll just, I'm going to read my favorite passage of the whole Bible. That's Revelation 21. By the way, if you were to ask me, Will, what is what of your beliefs has changed the most in the last 20 years? What has changed the most for me is my understanding of heaven. What heaven is and what heaven is not. And Revelation gives us some pretty great descriptions of heaven as a new heavens and a new earth where the veil between earth and heaven has been removed I've, I've taught this in church before that I've come to believe that heaven is not some ethereal cloud like realm where we all sit on clouds and play harps and not a whole lot of stuff happens I believe that heaven is busy and exciting and lots of stuff happens I believe that the description of new heavens and new earth is such that the earth that we see around us will continue to exist. But 
that the effects of sin have been removed. And so there will actually be a Kansas City in heaven. Namely, new heaven and new earth. That phrase, new heavens and new earth, all five words is one term. New heavens and new earth. That's the way I refer to heaven now. And here, this is, this is not the only place. The last couple of chapters of Isaiah also describe new heavens and new earth in that term. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I'm going to keep reading, but I want to point out now that you can already tell that this is futurist. That no matter how you read Roman history, none of that's happened. The the physical return of Christ is still coming. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the one who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's a beautiful passage. That, I think, is, I, I think those are my favorite seven verses in the Bible. I just love them. That's a, that's a great place to end. If you notice, I did not talk about demon hordes and raptures and all kinds of stuff. I'm, if you're interested in all that, I would encourage you. I can, I can get you some links of stuff and some... Bible teachers that I trust and and we can dig into that stuff if you want to but I don't necessarily think it's really possible to dig it too far into Revelation and for this to stay a secular class so that's what we're going to so next week we're going to be in the Gospels and Acts on Thursday we'll do Acts so Matthew and Mark are 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 what we're going to start with and we'll talk about their similarities and their differences and then we'll talk about Luke and Acts now Luke and Matthew and Mark are, are similar as well But I like to do Luke and Acts together because they're the same author to the same recipient, a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Luke, I believe, always intended for it to be a two-part story. So like Luke part one and Luke part two, which is also called Acts. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. 
and thank you.